Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. I'm your host, Laura Reeves. Here at the Good Dog Pod, we are all about supporting dog breeders and responsible dog ownership. Join our mission and help change the conversation because we are all stronger together. Good Dog is on a mission to build a better world for our dogs and the people who love them through education and advocacy. The Good Dog Pod provides dog lovers with the latest updates in canine health and veterinary care, animal legislation and legal advocacy, canine training and behavior science, and dog breeding practices. Subscribe and join our mission to help give our dogs the world they deserve. Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and this is a very exciting podcast, one I've been trying to get organized for, I don't know, maybe two years. And this is the first part of a two-part episode. We're going to be talking today with three fabulous Labrador Retriever breeders. I think I was just told we have about 120 years worth of Labrador Retriever knowledge here. So Sue Willemson and Barbara Gilchrist and Susan Patterson are joining us. And we are going to talk about the number one dog of all breeds by registration numbers, the most popular dog in the United States. And I'm thrilled to have you ladies. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. All right. Sue Willemson, I think we're going to start with you. You are the furthest left in my, what did we say this was? The Hollywood squares? (laughs) So Sue, can you introduce, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've been doing for the last number of years? Okay, I'd be happy to. The name of my kennel is Wilcare Labradors, and it actually started in the 60s as Wilcare Whippets. My aunt was a Whippet breeder, and we would go to the shows, and I traveled with her with Professional Handler, and we showed a lot of dogs, not a Labrador. (laughs) Not one Labrador in the whole group did afford me to go traveling some places I never would have gone and learn a lot of interesting things about dog people, as we can all share. And I'm also in veterinary medicine. So when I started working in practices, one of the practices in particular, we had a big breeder clientele and loved the Labradors when they came in. Mm -hmm. That's what drew me to it. And my first Labrador I got in 1980, after working in practices for about 10 years at that point, And she turned out to be not the show dog I wanted, but I learned a lot. And I was actually mentored by an old-time breeder, Lorraine Robinar in Killingworth Labradors. And went on, after many trials and tribulations, (laughs) to lease a dog from Sally Bell of Bordor fame. And that litter, the female I kept was the foundation of Wilcare Labradors. And it came from Mansur. It was an import from England and clear on every single thing you could imagine. Nice. Yes. And this particular female was bred, ended up five times, and she produced something of value each time, including my favorite chocolate dog, Wilcare's Masterpiece. Mm. And he was quite a character. (laughs) But I don't ever feel you learn until you have some trials to get over. And along the way, I've done a lot of in the show ring. I do field work. I have a tendency to get injured in field work, so I've kind of given that up. 
Better you than the dog? What is that? Yeah, broke my leg, broke my arm. Oh my gosh. Get poison ivy driving <laughs> in. It's oh one God. of those things you just don't want to see, I've decided. It's better left to the professionals. And I have a lot of performance dogs as well from this. But still being in veterinary medicine, I'm very particular about the breeding program, et cetera. But I'm best known for my chocolates at this point because I've been very lucky. Nobody ever thought I had yellows. My first dog was a yellow. (laughs) But I find the breed to be very entertaining. And I've gotten my AKC judge's license, and not only in Labradors, but in many of the sporting breeds and a couple of the hounds, because I also had beagles on my first dog. Of course, most people's first dog was a beagle, actually. So it's been an interesting road. And best of all is that everybody that I've met through this and everyone that I've learned stuff from, it's a wonderful journey to be on. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. So with that beautiful segue, I'd like to introduce Barbara Gilchrist, who we were just joking off air when we started. I first met Barbara when I was, I'm not sure, maybe nine, maybe eight. My parents had field trial Labradors before we were involved in any other dogs or purebred dogs or anything else. My dad had a field trial lab. He ran hunt tests and field trials. He became a judge. And we met Barbara then. And so she, of course, was one of the first people I wanted to talk to because she's who I remember from labs. So welcome, Barbara. I am super excited you could make it. Thanks, Laura. I appreciate that intro. I started similar to Sue Willemson. I got my first dog. Gosh, it was 1964 and it was a Labrador. She was six months old. She was a field trial reject. She was out of a very famous field trial champion back in the day named Super Chief. And when she came to me, she was flown out by my brother who was back in New York. And she had everything that could throw a little girl off wrong with her. She was a chronic (laughs) runaway, probably had been washed out of a field trial program because of maybe not handling pressures well. I'm not sure exactly what was wrong with her, but If she didn't get me out of dogs completely, nothing would. And I started on my journey in obedience with her. And I still am friends with some of the people at my very, very first obedience class. And of course, they're in their 70s now. And it's been a journey meeting people. And I would absolutely echo what Sue said about the family that you incorporate in dogs are part of your family. They're not connected to us, you know genealogy wise, but they are connected to us by the fur. So I started with that dog and was able to get a couple of obedience titles on her. And then she ended up with hip dysplasia. And that was back in the day when there really wasn't any real way of knowing what was wrong with her, you know? And so after her, I started again and bought my next dog and he also had hip dysplasia. And that dog was bought with my babysitting money. And so that was a tough lesson. You know, you can only have one dog when you're living at home with your parents in a big house with a bunch of kids. And so they said, you can have another dog, but you have to make that choice. And so I placed him into a hunting home and started again. And that next dog had hip dysplasia. So it was a rough road for a young person. And then I paid my dues, I think, and eventually had a black dog that became one of the top producers 
His name was Monarch Black Arrogance, and he opened all the doors. And I look back at my youth when I got that dog, uh, senior in high school, and if I hadn't gone through all that I went through in that journey up to him, I look back and realize those were things, those were lessons I had to learn before I was given this dog. From there, it just has been a fantastic, positive ride. And so I too was blessed to have that particular animal come to me and I got to be living with him. I mean, it was a great honor to have a dog like that. So I started about then with college and after being in college for a while and just kind of given an opportunity, hearing about a job opening at a field trial kennel with one of the top and now as an honorary field trial member, Ed Minaji, I took that job. My parents said, what? You're not going to stay in college? And I took that job and my dad was always really great about, gee, honey, you are a blessed person if you can have a passion that pays. And so he understood that I was leaving school and not getting my degree. And my path took a real hard turn and I won the job over seven other men, first woman that they ever hired and started to hone in my shotgun skills. I had to be very good at that and started to work with Ed every day, Ed Minaji, and training the field trial dogs. I learned a whole other new avenue of what a Labrador can do. And so I just started my journey learning more and becoming, I think, a well-rounded, ideal person for what a Labrador can do. They can look beautiful and they can do the hunting and they can do the field work and all that. I trained all the hunting dogs for them. And then I broke off from them and opened my own gun dog business. So that's kind of my start and some of my history. And I just am fascinated with all the different things that this breed can do. So I like to see a good working dog and I've bred a lot of champions and I've not had any other breed, although I've kind of looked at other breeds and thought she'd be nice to have that, but there's only me, you know, and I've got my support of my husband, but you know, when you only got yourself, it's hard to do other breeds. So I've stayed true to the Labrador and I do have all three colors now and I'm not as blessed in chocolate as Sue is, but I'm, <laughs> I'm working on it. I am very happy with where we're at now and it's been just a joyful, fun ride. Not that it's not been full of disappointments, but that's all part of the deal when it you're making it better, helping the breed, right? It is. So. Absolutely. Okay, Susan Patterson, who has been just, we have to tell the audience, sitting in line waiting for her COVID test with her mic under her mask. I said, that is about as 2020 as as we can possibly get. So Susan, welcome. You have a chance now to give us a little introduction. I'm absolutely fine, but if I sneeze, it's because my brain still tickles from having the test done. I'm Susan Patterson, and Fenwick Labradors is my kennel name. Like Sue and Barb, kind of had a circuitous path into dogs when I was younger. I started with a, gosh, her name was Mocha. She was a Cocker Spaniel mix. We're not sure what she was mixed with, but she was absolutely wonderful. And my father made me take her to obedience classes, made me do absolutely everything with her. And so she was my first official dog start when I was in fifth grade. Once I realized how wonderful dogs were, I started 
looking at sporting breeds, and I actually, my first dogs were golden retrievers and Irish setters. But children came along quickly, and that's a lot of grooming and diapers at the same time. So I swapped to Labradors because I wanted temperament, and that made a big difference. And I never looked back. I found it was interesting that Sue Willemson and I had the Sally Bell connection of Borador. My first Finnish champion was out of Sally's kennel. It was a dog who was too big for Sally. I tend to be a little tall at 5'9", and Sally barely comes up to my shoulder. And Borador's skip tracer was a dog that I could handle and go around the ring and look good with. And where Sally, even though she used to have Borzois, was a little more dog than she wanted to handle. So she was my connection kind of into Sue Williamson. <laughs> Through the years, I have been fortunate to have won Westminster in 2005, best of breed with champion Sunwick Stark Crystal. She was just my heart dog. Kind of tear up every time I think about her. Every one of us has one of those dogs. Yeah. I am fortunate, like Sue and Barb, to have connections in the dog world that are beyond our dogs. Sue Williamson is one of them that I just was overjoyed to move to Boston and closer to Sue. It was like moving almost next door to my best friend. It was like, yay. (laughs) (laughs) We make these kind of friends, which is truly wonderful. Without the dogs, I would still want them to be friends. And I've gotten to know Barb and Bob over the years at dog shows and just you always know you've got a friend somewhere. So the dogs have definitely been a real positive. And my dog journey has taken me slightly different than Barb and Sue in that I have become the whelper helper to everybody. I've taken it into a canine Facebook group where we now have 17,000 people and 200 plus veterinarians trying to give back to people. Kind of being a little bit like a Labrador myself in that you want to be able to be giving the Labrador is always looking for ways it can help you. And it's such a wonderful breed. The thing most people, like you said, were not aware of is that there really is only one breed standard. And so as each of us strive to breed to the breed standard, that becomes really important. Looking for our standard colors of black, yellow, and chocolate making sure that we do our best not to breed in any disqualifiable faults. And as Barb mentioned, each of us has had our share of heartbreak. You know, a lot of dogs wash out before we get to that most wonderful show dog or most wonderful field dog. I think that makes a real difference. And that's been my journey down the path for almost 40 years now, just as a small kennel, really enjoying what I do. I love it. All right. Well, ladies, I think that was fabulous. And I think that I would like to use that segue that Susan just offered us about the one standard and segue to Barb talking about the breed in the field, because while they're wonderful companions and they can be great show dogs and all the rest of it, so many of the people I know have this breed to be bird dogs, to be hunting dogs. And so, Barb, what I'm hoping you can talk about is describe how the Labrador hunts in the field, what it does, why it does it, and why its structure, as defined by the standard, is so important. Right. Well, I can tackle that question right now. So we all know the history of the breed, and they did everything. I mean, anything that incorporated their mouth from 
retrieving fishing nets and game. Could be dead rabbits. It could be ducks. It could be anything. The Labrador is genetically oral. And that's the one thing that we have to continue to think about when we're breeding, especially show dogs, because I've seen some show dogs that would never use their mouth for work. So they have a strong retrieving instinct. And the only time that we get into a divergent path with the field trial dogs, and back in the day when I was introduced in managing this field trial kennel, the field trial dogs were quite handsome. Mm -hmm. That's what you would say about them. They were handsome. There wasn't such a huge difference that there is today. Mm -hmm. And what's happened, unfortunately, in the field trial business is that those animals have gotten, because the breed is so biddable, so trainable, Mm -hmm. so good, that they can handle the pressures and the tests have gotten harder and harder and harder to get to that ultimate winner. And so the ultimate winners get bred. And so what has happened over the years is that the field trial dogs don't look very much like the old field trial dogs that used to be handsome. And now I look at the field trial dogs and I honestly see a very different look that is not necessarily very pleasing. Mm-hmm. So. It's kind of unfortunate, but that's what drives that sector of people that are in that part of the industry. And then we've got the other extreme in the show end of it, and that can be a little overdone, a little bit more reminiscent of some other breed. One of my mentors was Helen Warwick, and she said, if the animal is handsome in your judging, but he reminds you of some other breed, then it's wrong. And so that's something I've lived by because there can be some really handsome animals in the show ring, but they remind you subtly of something else. And so, you know, I think that there is a difference in the field trial Labrador and their looks and maybe their demeanor, their everyday living with them versus, you know, the confirmation Labrador. It's unfortunate because we all fall under one standard, but, you know, it's been interesting for me in my years because I've seen how much the field trial dog has changed in looks. Right. That's what you're involved with. Yes. And when you're breeding top field trial dogs, regardless of what their confirmation is, that never even enters the subject, then you do get a completely different looking animal. So So, Barb, can uh, you talk a little bit, because this is where I think it's really interesting. I think people lose track of it. And Sue and Susan, jump in if you want to add anything to this. But going on this thread that Barb's pulled here, When you make a dog conformationally, structurally different than it was designed to be, it's to do a different job or to do it differently. Mm -hmm. It becomes a specialty dog. It's got one job and it fulfills that job marvelously, but there's no regard for anything else about that specific part. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. I think it's so important when we think about breed standards that were written to describe the best Labrador retriever that the hunting guys had, right? These guys were sitting around Mm -hmm. drinking a shot of whiskey and bragging about whose dog was better when they wrote the standards. You know they were. (laughs) Okay, well, maybe not just the one (laughs) shot. Yes. So my point being, and I talk about this a lot, what they were describing was their dog that was the best at doing its job. And Mm -hmm. so I think when we stray too far from that, it makes it more difficult to do that original job. Would you agree? Mm -hmm. 
I would agree, at least with, I think the field dogs are tough charging, tough minded animals who can handle the pressure of the e-collar, the electric mm-hmm. collar. Yeah. I think that likewise on the other side of the coin, a lot of the confirmation dogs would not hold up under that kind of pressure brought to bear. Mm-hmm. So you're right. I mean, job description has a lot to do with the direction a gene pool takes. Yeah, well, absolutely. I agree with you, Barb. And I think because I've worked my dogs in the field and we're pursuing master hunters, I just finished one on one of the dogs, that we're not looking at the same type of hunting that used to be done even 50 years ago. We're looking at longer distances. We're looking at what, from my perspective, is almost an unrealistic hunting situation. Most of the people that I know who hunt with the dogs that I place with them as hunting companions aren't out doing thousand foot hits and asking their dogs to go and go and go like we do Mm -hmm. for a lot of the field trial dogs. And Mm -hmm. so a dog who is very sturdy, I'll use the word stocky, but not overdone, is going to be less likely to put in the times that these guys are looking for in their competition. So they're breeding for a dog who tends to be lighter, a dog who tends to be thinner, a dog who very often, and I have to chuckle when my husband takes our dogs out hunting, my dogs don't require a heater at duck camp. Their dogs do. (laughs) It's a totally different coat. And so they are breeding the form of the dog to the function that they want it to do, which is a little bit extreme in the trials. And the dogs just thrive under the pressure. So it becomes a challenge on structure like that. Right. Well, ladies, thank you so very much. I've taken enough of your time. You have been generous in your knowledge, and I very, very much appreciate it. Thank you all for joining us. This has been part one of our episode. Watch this space. Part two will be coming up soon. Good Dog has been deeply inspired by dog clubs and the important work that they do in promoting breeds and educating the public. Good Dog is on a mission to use technology as a force for good, to unite, support, and empower the good forces in the dog world. And there are no greater forces for good than dog clubs. Good Dog could not be more excited to announce their new club partnership program. This offers exclusive benefits to all clubs, including parent clubs, specialty, regional, local, all breed, performance, all the clubs. Club benefits include annual grants of up to $2,000, annual contributions to breed specific research, free tech support for items like improving website SEO, and free legal support and mediation. Due to overwhelming interest in Good Dog's club partnership program, we've extended the deadline for priority application to receive a club partnership grant. The new deadline is November 30th. Apply as soon as possible if your club is interested in securing funding for this year, 2020. For more information, please email Kat Matlub. Good Dog's Head of Community, Partnerships, and Legal Affairs at cat, C-A-T, at gooddog.com. 
Please share information about the Club Partnerships Program so that we can provide as much support to the good forces in the dog world as possible. We hope you and your clubs will join us because we are so much stronger together. Together, we can change the dog world.